Hello, and welcome to Controversies in Church History. My name is Derek Taylor, the host for this podcast, which uh, uh, details the, the most important events, people, and ideas in the history of the Catholic Church, which have become controversial, uh, or have been controversial in its history. Uh, you, if you like our uh, podcast, uh, you can subscribe to us uh, on uh, YouTube. Go to the channel there. Uh, Spotify is now uh, has taken over Anchor is now my podcast uh, platform. Uh, you can go uh, find all of our former episodes free there. Uh, however, if you want to get new episodes, um, well, some episodes will be free for everybody, but new episodes um, um, continuously, you can go subscribe on my Patreon page. Uh, I have three levels of subscription, five, seven, and ten dollars. Mostly, by the way, the episodes will be free, uh, but you can go there and subscribe. Uh, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, on the web, uh, churchcontroversies.com. I have a website. So I'll post things from time to time, announcements about stuff. So it's all there. Go check it out. Thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to uh, subscribers. I appreciate it. Uh, it's very humble that you want to, to contribute to this uh, effort of mine. And today we have a little bit of a, a different um, item for you. This is a re-recording of a, uh, an episode I've already done, but it was an episode I did when this wasn't a podcast. <laughs> it was an episode when back when I was doing this as a talk for my local parish, and the recording wasn't the greatest, so you can't hear it that well. At least some of these I'm going to re-record, and this is the first of these re-recordings, and the title of this is uh, The Reformation of the World, the Gregorian Reform, circa 1050 to 1150. If you've never heard of it, uh, you'll have some fascinating history uh, in the medieval period, so again, um, like the podcast and everything, go and subscribe and all that stuff. Uh, and tell people about the podcast. Keep spreading the word. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to uh, do better advertising uh, for this. And there's a lot of um, um, a lot of episodes you can go back. You don't have to subscribe or anything. You can go get in for free. So let people know about that. Uh, but anyway, we are talking about the Gregorian Reform. And uh, what is that? And why do I call it the Reformation of the World? Because it's one of the more significant reform movements in the history of the Western Catholic Church. It takes place in the Middle Ages. And it was a reform movement that emerged out of the situation of the church in the early part of the Middle Ages after the end of the, um, the Carolingian Empire, if you recall, the empire of Charlemagne, who briefly in the uh, 9th uh, century sort of creates a European-wide empire. Briefly, it kind of falls apart in a few decades after his life, uh, which kind of pushes uh, Western Europe into being a more... Uh, feudal type of society. But it also leads to uh, what will become, at least in the minds of these reformers, problems in the period after, in the in the, uh, in the uh, 10th and then the early 11th centuries, which will lead to this reform movement, which uh, I guess it's still today, you could see it's controversial in some ways. And this reform movement, just to set this out at the outset, had three goals, all which they achieved. Um, one of those was freedom from lay, lay, lay power, to get the church out of the control of the nobility, who basically ran it um, for reasons that will come apparent after you know, the collapse of Charlemagne's empire. Uh, local nobility did things like appoint parish priests. Um, why? Because it's a feudal society, and it's on their land, it's in their gift. Um, and so you get these, um, you get these you know, nobility who are appointing parish priests. You get them, you know, effectively, you get kings effectively appointing bishops. And so it falls in, in practice into their hands. And they want to get, they think this is wrong. Only the church will be able to appoint its priests and bishops. The second goal of all this was the reform of the clergy. For reasons that will come up apparent, the, both the conduct of the clergy, but also the status of the clergy in the minds of these reformers is um, it's unacceptable for reasons that will become apparent. And then finally, um, the third aspect of this reform movement was to reassert the primacy of the papacy over the entire church. And we have to understand something here. Um, they, the reason why this comes into conflict in the, this period is that in the early part of the Middle Ages, because um, this is going to be directed at, when I say free the church from lay control, I mean the control of nobility and kings. And, you know, kings in the early Middle Ages were sacred figures. 
most kings saw uh, their duties to their subjects um, as obligations imposed upon them by God to punish the oppressors, to protect the helpless, to spread the word of God uh, to their pagan neighbors, sometimes by violence. Um, this could be asserted in ways that were you know, obviously contrary to Christian faith to a certain degree, and sometimes in, in periods of disorder when they needed to you know, gain control of things. But it was an, uh, a very powerfully held ideal, especially in the former uh, King, uh, Carolingian kingdoms of France, the Holy Roman Empire, well, Spain. And so you have these kings, and the kings, by the way, from an early period, I want to say the 5th, 6th century, are being anointed uh, like Old Testament kings were. So these people, both they and their subjects, see them as sacred figures. And so they don't really see any problem with them governing the church like that. Why not? They're Christians too. Um, but it's this type of action, especially, again, where kings are, you know, kings and nobility are the only patrons of churches, of monasteries, financially. They, they become to dominate them uh, by not only bestowing the lands, because they own the land, they bestow, more crucially, offices on clerics by right of gift. If you know how feudal, feudal society works, it's basically you, you, you find a noble, a noble lord or a powerful lord and you swear fealty to him. He agrees to protect you. In return, he expects stuff from you. This is how this worked in the church in this period. And it's this type of thing that these reformers are aiming at in some regards. So where do they all, all these ideas come from in this period? Well, it really starts, um, begins in um, monastic realm. In particular, uh, following the collapse of Charlemagne's empire, you begin to have reforms within the Benedictine monasteries of Western Europe. The, um, the rule of Spain, Benedict, um, had kind of fallen into abeyance. Uh, by the ninth century, but again, it is restored throughout that uh, century by um, uh, by the example and teaching of, of Benedict of Anian, who was a monk associated with the reforms of Charlemagne. And there was this uh, move to re-emphasize the rule of Benedict in its strictness. And this will become a theme here as we're going back to origins, going back to you know what uh, these uh, Gregorian reformers will call later on in the, in the the 11th century, the Ecclesia Primitiva, going back to the origins. And it's um, an attempt to strictly adhere to monastic discipline, but also a shift in the way they practice it, because this man, Benedict of Anian, put great emphasis on the recitation of the monastic office. And so a lot of these monasteries came to put, you know, prayer over manual labor. And this is partly because these monasteries were increasingly became regarded by uh, lay Christians as primarily as intercessors, uh, intercessors to, you know, to God, you know, lay patrons would donate land and wealth to these monasteries. They would pray for their souls in, in response. And so contemplative intercessory prayer came to be seen as the primary purpose of monastic life in this regard. So you have this shift. You also have a shift uh, in terms of, um, in terms of the way these things are structured in that, um, the famous monastery at Cluny is founded in 909, and it's important because, uh, because it um, the uh, House of Cluny becomes um, also does something that's innovative. Its abbots are so successful, it begins to plant various daughter houses across France and Germany in the 11th and then 12th centuries. And this is an innovation um, uh, in terms of Christian monasticism, either east or west. Before this, all you know, monastic houses, foundations have been independent entities, but now numerous ones existed whose primary allegiance was not to their own abbot or local bishop, but to the abbot of the mother, mother house. And so this, again, gives some exemption from local uh, Episcopal jurisdiction, um, but it also becomes a source of appeal if the bishop or local lord becomes too oppressive. And increasingly what I'm getting at here is that these houses become more and more independent. Uh, the Clooney houses were generally uh, fronting to kings, but uh, kings were wary of them precisely because they were founded as independent centers and therefore outside of their immediate control for ultimately these monasteries uh, and their mother house. Um, uh, eventually, especially, and this is the key thing, this is what happens at the end of this period, end of the uh, 1080s onward, in the 11th century, uh, they will eventually appeal to the Bishop of Rome uh, to have their privileges re re um, renewed by, by, uh, by the Pope, and 
become subject only to him. So become a focus of independence from lay, lay authority. The other thing about this is that these reformers, again, because they put so much emphasis on reforming the discipline, going back to more austere forms of monasticism, you um, you began to have, you know, because older monasteries had been closely connected to society, and this meant that so many times their monks had been admitted by their parents as children, or they were monks who became shortly before their death so they could benefit from the prayers of the community. This seemed worldly to these newer foundations who wanted a more austere spirit, uh, who want to separate themselves from the world. And so it begins a long tradition, which is totally absent in the Eastern world, of reformed religious orders. For example, those founded at, for example, Situ in 1098, the Cistercians as they came to be called, intentionally settled in remote places and reintroduced manual labor in the simplified liturgy in their houses. Um, same time, 1084, roughly same period, 1084, St. Bruno founds the Carthusians at Chartreuse uh, in France. Again, hoping to restore the purity of the order, he didn't give his followers a rule. The point here is here, they want to see a distinction between the monastic life as the ideal of a Christian life and life in the world. This will deeply influence the Gregorian reformers because uh, some of them will come out of these monasteries. This is, this, is, this is something, by the way, if you don't know, traditionally, at least in most of Christian history, West and East, actually, lots of times reform movements in the church come from the monastic world. And the last thing that these, uh, these newer uh, reformed religious orders had in common, they tended to emphasize beliefs that were potentially explosive. One of these, and this is, I believe the Cistercians were actually known for this, was the idea that men's obligation to God was prior to that of their earthly superiors. This idea had existed before, but they emphasize it. But also, and this is the key thing, is that the clerical state itself was superior to lay pursuits in a way that just, again, that idea is there from the beginning, but... Um, or from an earlier period, but the idea that it, they really emphasize this lay states, the, the clerical states superior to the to the lay, and again, this is aimed at partly these these nobility, these kings who control the church, and this reforming spirit um, is going to catch fire, particularly in the 11th century, as we're going to see. Uh, and I'll mention a few people here, a couple of Italian, a few Italians um, in Italy, because it's important for the papacy. Um, a couple of important people. One is St. Peter Damien. If you probably know him, he's usually associated with uh, uh, his book, um, that's a series of letters uh, condemning sodomy among the clergy. But um, he's from Ravenna uh, in northern Italy, and there's a monastic life in 1043 there. And he implements in this monastery what he took to be these Benedictine reforms. But he turns his pen to issues of church reform, two of which are really important. Uh, for the reform of the clergy. That's what he's really uh, important for here, is um, if the Benedictines were partly about, you know, freeing from lay influence to a certain degree, um, Peter Damien and his ilk are concerned about the clergy, the, the regular clergy. And one of these things is simony, right? Simony is the buying and selling of church offices. This is seen as a consequence of lay control, you know, consequence of being part of this, this feudal uh, society they live in. And so they're attacking, by the way, one of the tenets of, 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 of this feudal society by saying, no, you can't do that about the clergy. With the, with, um, you know, this, they can't do that with the offices of the church, by the way, because they're holy. You shouldn't treat holy things like that. The other part they're attacking, St. Peter Damien, um, uh, as well as his, one of his comrades, is Umberto Silva Candida, also writes extensively against simony, um, is uh, he attacks, does Peter Damien, the... the uh, Tradition of clerical, uh, clerical uh, concubinage. And again, there's two reasons for this. One is worried about the moral standards of the clergy. Uh, also because, again, they view, do these reformers, the, the, the clerical state is being superior to, more pure than the lay state. Mm -hmm. Sex, you know, being in the world is uh, impurity. The other thing, of course, is that this system, if you have clerical, if you have clerical marriage, that means they can sort of marry into these lay families. They're connected to these, these noble families. And uh, so that's a, a concern that's uh, part of uh, the concern. But also, of course, it's contrary to a tradition of clerical celibacy in the Roman church. This goes back to the fourth century. It's ancient. So they're trying to assert all this stuff are people like Peter Damien and uh, Silva Candida. One thing to mention about this, this sometimes is portrayed, um, again, especially by progressive uh, theologians and things of this nature, 
that this is a clericalist thing that's imposed on, you know, Christian laity? Not totally, because the drive for clerical celibacy had lay support. Um, remember I mentioned earlier that, you know, laymen tended to see now the church increasingly as a privileged intercessor with God. They became concerned about the impurity of priests. And so you would have people who actually were, were, were on board with this. There was a movement, for example, in the 11th century in the city of Milan uh, in, uh, in Italy called the Paterines. And this name took, it, took its name from a group of uh, laymen who preached literally um, against, sometimes preached out in the open against the immorality of the clergy. And with the support, by the way, as we're going to see, uh, popes, like one pope we'll get to in a moment, Gregory VII, this is the, Gregory VII's the, the pope where you get this name, Gregorian Reform from, actually encouraged them to drive out the Bishop of Milan. So this is potentially almost subversive. So you have this drive for purity, which is not merely a clerical imposition. So you have wanting to free from lay control. You have wanting to reform the clergy. The last aspect of this, of course, is the reassertion of papal authority. Why would you need to reassert papal authority uh, in the uh, in the uh, in the eleventh century? So why would you need um, to reassert papal authority? Well, you need to reassert papal authority in the eleventh century because it, it basically fell off the face of the earth in the tenth. It, following um, the collapse of the Carolingian Empire, um, the papacy sunk into one of its lowest points, actually. A lot of bad popes, a lot of corrupt people. Uh, a later uh, 19th century Protestant historian named Ludwig uh, von Pastor, Ludwig Poster, uh, coined, coined the papacy, the, ten, uh, the, the, the term pornocracy to describe the papacy of the 10th century. Um, it became the playthings of uh, it became the plaything of ambitious nobles and emperors, the, particularly the Ottonian emperors of the 10th century. Had to go into Rome. They actually, they actually, you know, got popes uh, off the throne and put their own ones on there, and so it was an age of weakness. Um, you know, from the tenth century up to the early, uh, up to the early mid eleventh century, uh, such that by the time you get to the middle of the middle of the eleventh century, you have, you know, emperors. And I mentioned emperor. What is the emperor? Emperor is, of course, the successor. Uh, kingdom state to Charlemagne's empire. Um, we sometimes call it the Holy Roman Empire. It's a later term. They never use that term in official documents. It's just called the empire. But it's his successor kingdom. And they particularly became, you know, used to a couple of things. One, interfering in papal elections, but also um, appointing their own bishops. And so by the time you get to the middle of the 5th century, you have really nadir in some ways in the 1030s. You have in the year 1082, three, after 1030, uh, 1032, um, in the next couple of dozen years or so, there are three anti-popes. <laughs> uh, and so by the time uh, 1046 rolls around, the emperor at the time, Henry III, has a free hand to appoint the next pope, which he does. And... Um, but he's a reformer, Henry III was. And in fact, again, this is something to note about this, is that in this period when you know, the papacy is at its nadir, who's helping the church? It is kings, especially the emperors. They're actually on the side of reform in a lot of ways. But what happens in 1048 is that this first pope that Henry III appointed dies, and instead he, he has Bruno of Toul, a French bishop, consecrated as Pope Leo IX. And as a, he's a kinsman of Henry III, but he's also a dedicated reformer who shares the ideals of these Benedictine reformers, uh, and he will bring with him um, uh, people to Rome who are all these reformers. Peter Damien's one of his advisors. Another one is a German monk named Hildebrand, uh, who become a key advisor, and they're all fired by these ideals, you know, of, you know, freedom from lay control, reform the clergy, but they also want to reassert the authority of the papacy. And with the reforms that begin during the reign of uh, Henry III, the emperor, the papacy begins to assert its independence. After 1046, popes begin to travel outside of Italy to intervene in disputes uh, with bishops. Summon, they begin to summon church councils and issue decrees for reforms in local churches. And um, they begin investigating abuses and encouraging appeals to the papacy. Um, the popes begin to send out cardinals and legates to mediate disputes often to the chagrin of local bishops who've gotten used to not having this happen. But in particular, you're going to have, um, you're going to have um, uh, the papacy begin to assert its independence. And particularly in a period from 1059 onward, they hold a series of synods 
and especially the ones in 1059 and 1060 are really crucial. Uh, Nicholas II is the Pope at the time. And in 1059, they hold the, the Lateran Synod of 1059, issues a decree restricting the right of electing a new Pope only to car- cardinals in Rome. Why do you say this? Because that effectively nullifies the inter, uh, the right of the emperor to intervene. In other words, they're trying to free themselves from the control of the emperors. Um, they also issue decrees forbidding any priest from accepting a church from a layman. That's attacking simony. Uh, they also issue decrees barring priests from living in com- uh, concubinage from celebrating the sacraments. Again, the idea is this makes them impure. And then they also commanded the faithful not to assist unworthy ministers. So they're encouraging the lay faithful to get away from what they thought were impure priests. And then finally, they begin to exalt the papacy, do the sort of advisors around these popes in the middle of the 11th century. The idea is that uh, they put forth is that the that power of the church flows from the pope downward. It flows from the Roman church or the pope to the rest of the church. Sometimes the two are blurred. Uh, writers such as Hildebrand and others um, begin exalting papacy as the sole source of the power in the church as early as the 1050s. And this idea will set the sort of rhetorical parameters for what happens later. They begin making assertions that, you know, for example, that um, it's heresy to disobey the Pope. Again, these things are kind of novel in the, in the 11th century. Um, and the reason they're doing this, by the way, is because at this point, Damien and people like Peter Damien and Hildebrand think that uh, reform, real reform of the clergy and of the church can only happen if you get rid of lay control, and that can only happen through the papacy. And so they assert his power because these these a lot of the, most of these things have been asserted before. I don't, I'm not, I don't mean to emphasize the novelty here at all, but the way they're asserted is very strident and different for a variety of reasons that become clear in a moment. And so in 1073, uh, Hildebrand the monk becomes Gregory the Seventh, the Pope, and he's famous for the so-called uh, conflict of investitures or the investiture controversy, and. It's uh, controversial because of the way he asserts papal authority. And one of the most famous documents associated with his reign is the so-called Dictatus Pape, which is a sort of list of headings for organizing ancient canons, which, as far as we can tell, by the way, and this needs to be said, was never was never distributed, never circulated, never used for anything. There are no direct references to this this document and anything else that Gregory VII wrote. It's only occasionally mentioned in, by canon lawyers later on. But they're kind of extraordinary, these statements that are made in this document, just to give you an idea of the kinds of things that, that asserted. And uh, it asserted, for example, among other things, that the Roman Church was, quote-unquote, founded by the Lord alone, uh, that the Roman Church... Um, has not erred, cannot err, will never err, that <laughs> um, the Pope uh, cannot be judged by anyone, legally speaking, that his legates, who are representatives across all Christendom, took precedence over all local authority. Uh, the Pope, therefore, had the authority to, to depose bishops alone. Um, he could uh, make law and deliver judgments for which no one could be, no appeal could be made. And he could also do this. This is the explosive thing here. He's overlord of secular princes. He could depose secular princes. At least some of the things in there make clear that he could if they disagree with the Roman church. Again, I should mention, these are bald statements, not qualified, and not actually emphasized um, by Gregory VII, but more or less is the general idea that basically the, the, the pope is the ruler of the entire Christian world. Uh, and basically, he, you know, his theory basically is that the papacy is of divine origin. He's the only intermediary in the church between man and God, charged with making known the will of the Trinity and the, of the apostles Peter and Paul. Now, when I say all this, by the way, let me be clear about something. He's not saying, Gregory didn't assert that the, the, the institution of the, of the papacy itself was somehow uh, segregated from tradition. Um, there was a, a good historian years ago named Carl Morrison, an Anglican, by the way, I think a priest, wrote a book called Tradition uh, in the Western Church, 300 to 1100. And he pointed out, as we're going to get here and here, in this, this uh, investiture controversy, both sides in this, this controversy appeal to tradition. Uh, Pope Gregory VII thought he was just reasserting the ancient tradition of the Roman Church. Uh, and it appealed and justified his, his very, very, very strong claims to authority in those terms. But they'd never been quite made this way before. 
And so one of the things that he's, uh, that he, the hills that he's willing to die on that's, again, comes from these reformers um, is that they want free and canonical elections of bishops. And by free, they mean, of course, free from, <laughs> free from imperial influence. And, of course, emperors would resist this. But, however, during the early years of um, his reign, the emperor at the time, Henry IV, um, he came to the throne as a as a as a um, as a minor. So in the early years of his reign, he didn't have a lot of control in the empire over his church. And in fact, the papacy regained a lot of control over the church and the empire. Now, what happened is, as soon as he came to the throne, Henry IV started to try to reclaim some of that authority. And this is where he comes into conflict with Gregory VII. And he claimed, did Henry IV, a right to choose bishops without regard to the church and to invest them with their clerical office. And uh, this is what, of course, butts heads with uh, Gregory VII, who Hildebrand was a real fiery person, as you can imagine. And this, this happens as early as 1074, or 1075, and this leads to a split between the princes of Germany who support the Pope and those who support uh, Henry, who is soon, several times actually, excommunicated by Gregory VII. And what's going to happen, by the way, because of this, is you're going to have civil conflict throughout the empire for the better part of the next 50 years. It causes a lot of damage, uh, does this conflict in, uh, in the 1070s. Um, and so there's a rebellion against Henry by his princes, but by 1075, he has uh, already gained the upper hand over them and begins investing bishops with their authority again. In response, Gregory issues another admonition, uh, basically threatens him with excommunication if he doesn't stop. He holds a synod, does Gregory, in 1075 in Rome, that's condemned lay investiture. In response, Henry holds an imperial synod in Worms, which declared uh, Gregory VII not to be the pope, uh, which ended with the uh, with the, the call to descende, descende in Latin, come down, in other words, resign from the papacy. And finally, Gregory uh, has had enough in 1076. He excommunicates um, Henry IV. And by the way, does something else that's also really explosive. He basically says his vassals are released from their oaths of allegiance to Henry. The popes claimed basically to be able to say that, okay, you're, you're a subject of the king of France. If I say so, you no longer have to obey his authority. Just imagine, just imagine how, <laughs> what that kind of does. Well, it caused another rebellion, actually, is what it did. Uh, and, of course, uh, this time things didn't go so well for Henry IV. And so um, the Pope, in 1077, flees north to a castle in the mountains of Canossa, at Canossa, northern Italy. And Henry made his way down there. We're not really sure about this. We're not really sure how this goes down, because on the one hand, the Pope seems to be fleeing from... Henry's going with an army into Italy, by the way. Um, but Henry makes his way to Canossa, apparently dressed in the dress of a penitent seeking absolution. Um, and the Pope hesitated. And the reason why is, part of the reason he excommunicated him in the first place is, of course, now that he's outside the church, that gives him leverage over Henry. However, coming to him dressed as a penitent, begging for absolution, which is apparently what he did, he had no choice. After three days, he allowed Henry to enter the castle, accepted his submission, and absolved him. Um, but he was, of course, right uh, to be suspicious because, again, rebellious princes in, uh, in Germany uh, elected an anti-king, uh, a guy named Rudolf of Swabia. Uh, and so he go back to war again in, in, in Germany. Uh, and, of course, um, He's still, Henry went back on his words, now ex, uh, investing bishops again. So the Pope excommunicates Henry again in 1080. Henry, Henry IV responds by having imperial bishops uh, elect an anti-Pope at Ravenna. Later that year in 1080, in 1080 um, he defeats, does Henry, Rudolf of Swabia in battle, who dies of his wounds. And so by 1081, he's defeated his enemies in, uh, in Germany. In 1081, he brings his army to, to Rome and conducts a three-year siege of the city. And then in 1084, he will enter uh, and uh, basically drive Gregory into exile, install his anti-pope as Clement III. And um, Gregory will appeal to his Norman allies, actually his vassals. The Norman kings of Sicily were actually vassals of uh, the papacy. Um, 
causes a lot of damage. Uh, they try to recapture the city. They fail. And instead, uh, Gregory VII dies in exile in 1085 at Salerno. Um, kind of embittered. Uh, he's supposed to have said on his deathbed or close to his death, uh, I have loved righteousness and hated iniquity, therefore I die in exile. Uh, quoting the psalm there. Um, his successor, Urban II, would, success, would successfully drive the anti-pope out of Rome and the struggle with his sons, with uh, Henry IV between his sons, with his sons in Germany, however, his sons rebelled against him, uh, uh, would consume the rest of Henry's life till he dies in 1106. But this didn't end the conflict. Um, the same issues reared their heads again in several different places, not just in the empire. Uh, in this time in England, 1102, for example, between Henry I, the brother of William the Conqueror, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Anselm, over Henry's appointment of bishops. Uh, over a period of several years, five years, they wrangle. They finally come to an agreement in 1107 called the Concordat of London, in which they compromised. Henry would cease to invest bishops with spiritual powers, but he would still demand homage from them as vassals, as subjects, and grant them their feudal temporalities, their, their property. But Henry I was still free to choose bishops without reference to the church. So that domino doesn't fall there. You have, you have some um, um, precursors of this in France as well. Um, that, only that only comes into the picture in 1122, when the Concordat of Worms is signed by Henry V, uh, the emperor at the time, and Pope Calixtus II. And it follows, by the way, this had been suggested decades earlier by uh, the churchman's name, but it basically granted the church the right of choosing the candidate, but allowed the emperor some influence and that he was to be present at their consecration. Other words, he could be there to intimidate them <laughs> or at least have some influence like, hey, I'm here. You can't just do whatever you want. And by the way, you couldn't just let, by the way, you couldn't just, a, a king could not just sit by and let the church choose someone who was inimical to him. So he had to have some influence. Um... But the other thing they did was they the, this, along with the separation of feudal temporalities, feudal lands from ecclesiastical office, meant now you could draw a clear legal distinction between the church and uh, the temporal authorities. Uh, and for the first time, and this, by the way, be clear, is not separation of church and state. Um, it's still officially a Christian kingdom. They still refer to Christianity all the time. But as legal entities, they are now distinct things. And one last note about this, and again, we date this the end of the Gregorian reform to about 1150 or so. It took much longer to free the lower clergy from lay control. Um, they had advocated um, things like uh, these Gregorian reformers, people around Gregory VII and others, um, the election of bishops by cathedral chapters, again, to free them from noble influence, but also the appointment of priests by bishops. Again, priests, again, had been appointed by, you know, noble, noblemen and stuff like this. By the middle of the 12th century, by the 1150s, um, the appointment, this, these two things have taken hold in most places. So, in other words, by the middle of the 12th century, nothing by the end of the 12th century, um, the reforms they had wanted are more or less enacted. And so it is successful in the, are the Gregorian reforms in that regard. So what are the consequences of all this? And why is this? This sounds good, right? The church triumphed. It got separation from the laity. Um, what happened? Why is this a controversial thing? One thing to talk about here is that sometimes people, some scholars have referred to a, a papal revolution because the Gregorian reformers made so many claims to the papacy to you know, judge you know, legal cases, all of this stuff, that it increased the size of papal government. Um, in the ensuing centuries, 11th, 12th, 13th centuries, uh, a series of institutions, um, the church had created a series of institutions to ensure the workings of the Pope's interests. A chancery to issue documents, um, a treasury which, which housed archives and library of documents, so you issue things like papal bulls. Um, by the mid-12th century, the College of Cardinals was something like a court in its own right. And the curia itself was a massive legal operation uh, because it would receive pilgrims, you know, to Rome for you know feast days and stuff like that. But also litigants going to the papal court, for hoping for a favorable judgment. Uh, people would come to Rome, and the creation of these structures made the medieval papacy the largest and most sophisticated institution in Europe. The only thing, and it really wasn't in a lot of, a lot of ways, the only thing, any only thing like a real bureaucracy in a modern sense, and it really wasn't. But it was the closest thing. Um, 
And it was um, Urban II, at the end of the 11th century, who uh, first began to reorganize and centralize the administration apparatus of the papacy as well. All this, by the way, went in, uh, along with um, another thing that uh, comes out of these reforms. Uh, it's the call for crusade, by the way. Urban II is the one who called the, fir- the first crusade at Claremont in 1096, which, again, the popes see their, begin to see their role as a universal governor of the entire Christian world. They begin acting on it, and that's part of that. Another thing that happens, because this growth of the papacy, you also have the, um, the, um, the increasing importance of canon law. This is kind of a sort of indirect consequence of the sort of high claims that Gregory VII and his successors made for the papacy and the church. Again, the idea that the church had a unique divine authority that transcended any merely human bonds, feudal, trital, familial. That's basically what they were saying with regards to the these these secular they're basically trying to desacralize monarchy saying no you're not actually you don't actually have any divine authority over these things only we do only the church does and that's a pretty pretty you know when you say that and then you say that the church alone can legislate for itself again it makes necessary uh the growth of an administration to handle all those activities because it was involved in almost everything in medieval life um, at the same time this is happening in the 11th and 12th centuries, Roman law is being uh, resurrected in medieval universities and as an object of studies. And, um, and so, you know, Roman law is used to create a legal system, which we call canon law, from, from the system. And this creation of canon law as a specialized separate body of, body of law, separate from civil jurisdiction, was, according to Harold Berman, the historian, revolutionary because it reintroduced systematic law back into Western life. It became the first modern, something like the first modern legal system in that it created a class of specialist canon lawyers whose sole purpose was to administer a, a rationally constructed systematic body of law rather than a, a mere collection of written customs, which that's mostly what law was um, in the early Middle Ages. The revolutionary in that point, excuse me, in that in that in that uh, in that sense, it's also influential because the uh, the influence of papal theories of government, because what effectively um, the pope is doing, what the reformers do, is they assert the sovereignty of the papacy over the church. Now, the idea of sovereignty, the idea that you know that one you know one ruler has the final say over the whole church, is something that goes back to Roman law. But it's going to create a really sharp, highly refined view of sovereignty, which in the later period, when you get to the Renaissance, kings will begin to formulate their theories of rule of divine right, essentially against the claims of popes, uh, which basically naturally conflicted with them. In other words, modern theories of government owe something of their origins to medieval disputes over papal authority because its claims were so far-reaching. And in their, extreme, their most extreme forms, by the way, don't really reach until you get to the 13th, 14th century, and they are, they're nuts. <laughs> in fact, there was a man named Giles of Rome who wrote a work called, uh, I think it's on Ecclesiastes, I have it on my shelf somewhere, Ecclesiast- of ecclesiastical power, which was sort of the height of this assertion of medieval authority. Basically, again, it, it kind of flows from what things that uh, some of the supporters of Gregory VII were saying, that because he was the the head of the church, he was the pope, had, was ruler of the church, because he was the ruler of all lay Christians, he's the ruler of the lay world, that effectively says that he's he's the ruler of the entire world. And in fact, the, the subtitle of my, I have a English tra- Latin-English translation of that work, uh, the subtitle of that book is A Medieval Theory of, I think it was called Global Government or something like that. It is kind of like that in its extreme form. So it's a it's a massive. I don't want to overdo this. I don't. I'll get this. In, I'll make a caveat in a minute. I don't want to overdo this, because when I say it's all a big institutional assertion of authority, again compared to modern modern states, the medieval papacy is nothing. So in terms of degree, it's not as maybe as big of a institution as we think it is. But for the time, the assertion is kind of um, new in a lot of ways. The other thing, of course, that happens here, and I've already hinted at this is this idea of the clergy as a superior order, this reforming spirit that the, that the uh, 
that uh, first the uh, uh, Benedictine reformers and then the Gregorians themselves um, really uh, adhere to. Um, this idea takes hold by the mid-11th century. The papacy you know, catches this reforming spirit. And um, again, the idea is they want to separate the church from the world, even though they're in it. And again, this is why you want the separation of, you know, and this is, and this sounds weird in some ways. One of the big things about this, uh, about getting rid of married clergy was not, partly it was sexual in nature, but the idea of sexual impurity, but also to free itself from the cares of the world, right? Uh, St. Paul says, you know, someone who is worried about their wife is worried about the affairs of the world, not the affairs of God. Those two things are really important to these reformers. And in fact, they, this amounted to a reshaping of all society when they did this. Uh, and even before the reformers, in the, the ninth century, there emerged this idea of the three orders in France. This is the idea that the, you know, there were three orders to you know, um, society, those who worked, those who fought, those who prayed. And that the third order was the most important, right? Because it was sacred. Um, it was sacred, and therefore its character shouldn't be tainted by impure, uh, impure activities. By the way, one of these activities was war. <laughs> Again, this is a monastic idea. You know, monks like you know peace, tranquility, and these you know big barbaric, you know feudal feudal kings are basically you know. When I used to teach feudalism to my my Western Civ classes, I explained it as a theory of government in which big guys with swords run things. <laughs> and these, these monks didn't like these big, it seemed, it seemed impure to them. And, um, and this is, this is, uh, and this is, um, uh, and they, they, and they, they basically, you know, enshrine this idea that the clerical estate was a superior way of working out one's salvation in comparison to the lay estate. Uh, and by the way, this had always been been asserted with regards to like celibacy or monastic. Monasticism had always been seen as the ideal, right? The ideal way. Most people couldn't do it, so it was okay. What's new here is the sort of attachment of this monastic ideal to the secular priesthood, taking the monastery into the world. Um, and again, and sort of trying to impose that essentially on everybody, which is what led to all these things that happened. This is much later on, but you get to the, um, there's a series of Lateran councils, councils of the Lateran uh, Basilica in Rome in the 12th and 13th centuries, where popes would codify a lot of the beliefs that stem from this idea. Um, one of these, of course, is clerical celibacy for priests, which is made mandatory in the 12th and 13th centuries, you know, again, to prevent the handing on of church offices to relatives uh, and those sorts of things, but also to improve the moral life of the clergy. Um, marriage was confirmed as a sacrament, an indissoluble union, uh, conferring sanctifying grace upon those who enter into it. Uh, it makes clear, by the way, the voluntary nature of the bond as well. It can't be forced. Again, this is important for, if you're wondering why that's important, by the way, so you can't force people to get married. So you can, it's meant to sort of uh, separate the church from these, when we say family ties, when I say family ties, I mean family ties kind of like the godfather. Like literally, these are when I say families, when they don't want, they don't want they don't want families passing on church offices or buying and selling them. We mean these noble families, which have kinship network, networks which extend everywhere, um, and so they're trying to sort of curb that. And this is where you get you know claims to where uh, levels of consanguin, consanguinity come into this as well. So you're getting this, you're shrinking the notion of family, so you, you can get control of the church and its property away from these these nobility and these kings. It also, of course, the Lateran councils enunciate the doctrine of transubstantiation. But effectively, they make effective papal claims to govern the church and legislate for it, to claim and exercise authority over it, um, but also enshrine these ideals about the clergy as well. The other thing about these, um, this, if you wanted to put it this way, uh, this growing clericalism of the church was I mentioned this before, um, you know, Gregory VII actively encouraging laymen and lowering clergy to undermine bishops who thought they were tainted with corruption. Um, and his assertion of a right to depose monarchs, these were really subversive things. Um, you could almost, I think you could say some of these things are morally dubious, even if they can be justified by very extreme circumstances. Um, one of the things that's going to happen later on in the Middle Ages, because, of course, you know, these high-minded people like Gregory VII, for the most part, he was just concerned about, you know, the church's authority. Later popes who are not as high-minded will abuse these things. 
And this will gain the papacy a reputation for subverting the civil order in the late Middle Ages. This will actually feed into the Reformation and become a justification for it. And then finally, just, just, to, just to put all this in a bunch, okay, so you have this reform movement, um, the Gregorian reform movement, uh, which is successful. It reforms the clergy. It does more or less raise the... It's never perfect, by the way, um, the, the, the behavior of the clergy in any age. But it does more or less do this by the middle of the 12th century. It does more... I say more or less, never totally, and these kings still have a lot of control over the church and their territories, but it does free them from the most egregious um, impositions of lay influence. And then finally, of course, it is magnificently successful and reasserting, reasserting papal primacy. That's why when you get to the, um, to the 13th century, Innocent III, probably the, the sort of ideal um, papal ruler of the Middle Ages, uh, can say things like, and I'm quoting here, quote, we do not intend to judge concerning a thief, but to judge concerning sin, of which judgment undoubtedly belongs to us, and we can and should exercise it against anyone, unquote. Can't get more... Um, baldly assertive of your authority than that. So it was a success. Um, but like any reform movement, it has excesses and errors, and you can still think that the results were worth it. Uh, and I do think the results in the sh in the short term, short term, a century, couple centuries. So it worked. Uh, it was a successful reform movement. But you could make the argument, and then long run, it came at a great cost. The growth of the church's legal system and to give you an idea, by the way, of how much how much canon law dominated the medieval church, most medieval popes were not theologians. They were canon lawyers. Because most of what they did was hear cases and suits and stuff like that. The growth of the papal machinery of government, right, took up more and more of its time, more and more of its finances. It also meant, by the way, the growth of the curia meant that prelates of the curia, who they're kind of like the papal court, they're kind of like the, the counterpart to a secular court, or or a monarchical court, they, you know, they're his representatives, right? Going and treating with kings. They come to live in splendor, a lot of them. Some of them already had. But they do this partly because they have to treat with princes on an equal level. And that's not, that's actually right, by the way, because these, these, these kings weren't impressed with people running around. They weren't going to talk to a hermit living in a pigsty somewhere. That means, of course, it means the church ironically, it gets more and more involved in these worldly things. And then finally, and this is something, again, was not intended by the reformers at all. They wanted to make the clergy holy. But by ingraining this division between clergy and lady based on legal status, it tends to sort of override the whole idea of, not override it, but um, it'll come to sort of, you know, blur the idea that holiness of life is the important thing, you could say. And so, again, it led to problems later in the Middle Ages. It probably fed into uh, um, things that uh, led to the Reformation. So it definitely came with some costs and benefits. Uh, it came with some costs, even at the expense of all the benefits. One last thing I want to say about this, one last caveat about the growing reforms, because we tend to emphasize you know, what a, um, a shift it is. When I mentioned Gregory VII, you know, making all these arguments about the papacy, it's pretty funny. Um, the new uh, new Catholic Encyclopedia mentions that, um, uh, on referring to Gregory the Seventh, the man who you know, gives his name to this reform movement, he was very sparingly referred to in sources um, before the Reformation. He's kind of forgotten. He's not really this key figure as we think of him today in a lot of ways. A lot of historians do until the Protestant Reformation, when interest was revived amongst him amongst Protestants and Catholics. Presumably, by the way, because they're reading back into him all the things that happened afterwards, which he didn't necessarily, you know, he wasn't thinking, you can't predict what's going to happen four centuries after your death. So, um, and that's why, by the way, he wasn't canonized until, um, until, um, until, the, uh, uh, until the, the 17th century, actually. And I think that's because, again, we can sometimes, because it was such a shift, it seems like, oh, you know, the trip became this gigantic, gigantic bureaucracy, you know, with Gregory the Seventh. Not really. Not as much as we think. And we kind of overdo that stuff uh, when we think about this. Because, again, this gets into all sorts of things, right? Complaints about clericalism, complaints about legalism of the Western church. Um, you can kind of overdo it. Um, and um, I, I think it's much more understandable in the context of the time. 
Um, it probably did have some uh, some unintended, as most most things do in history, some unintended consequences that maybe maybe don't seem um, as good in the long run. And so that is it. That is the uh, end of this episode. A um, couple of things. Um, last notes to, before I let you go. Uh, be at least one more sort of short episode coming. Uh, this is episode everyone should be able to hear this. This will also be the next one will also be for um, for all people, not just subscribers, not just patrons. And uh, very soon, probably within the next week, the next uh, episode on our series of Latinization, to which, by the way, this is a little bit, uh, this, this, this episode's kind of background. So because in that episode, I'll talk about Gregory VII's um, efforts to reform the liturgy, which he did do that. And then, um, uh, and that, and uh, I, before then, I'm actually going to release the first episode of Latinization for everybody as well. So, if you're a patron, you've got stuff coming. And if you are uh, not a subscriber yet, uh, not a patron, you'll have stuff coming anyway. But uh, with that, please do go and uh, go to Facebook page and like that. Go to, uh, please subscribe on YouTube if you haven't. If you don't listen there, it helps me. I'm trying to monetize the channel. Um, so I need to get to a thousand subscribers. So please, please go do that and encourage people to do that. And, um, also on Spotify, uh, you can go check that stuff out there, out there as well. Uh, go uh, listen there or anywhere else, Apple podcasts, places like that. Those are all there. Uh, visit, uh, churchcontroversy.com, my website. And, um, oh, I just published another essay, uh, on, uh, in crisis magazine. Uh, it's kindly published that. Uh, and uh, uh, essay on the uh, on the uh, German synodal way. So all the, the goings on in Germany at the moment, kind of controversial stuff there. So go check it out. And uh, yeah, and if you uh, uh, if you like what you hear here, go and you know go leave a comment uh, on uh, Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. I'm trying to put up more polls and stuff so you guys can you know interact with me. Oh, that's the other thing. Yes, at some point in the near future, I aiming for the end of the month, I am going to announce, I'll, I'll announce it before then, try to get some interest in this, but I want to do a live stream with y'all. Uh, you guys can ask me questions about any recent episodes, uh, stuff at crisis I've been writing, any events in the church, whatever, whatever you want to talk about, basically. I'll, I'll propose a topic. We can talk about whatever you want. Uh, but that'll be coming soon as well. And that'll be one for, for uh, all listeners, not just uh, patrons. But, oh yes, and if you do feel like, if you like this, think this is good stuff, go and please... Um, um, you know, if you want to become a patron, please go over there and think about that. Uh, it would help, uh, grease the wheels a little bit here. Again, I'll repeat this. I'm not trying to make a living at this, but, um, always helps. Uh, it's a way of showing appreciation and it does, uh, get you motivated. So last spiel, last of that spiel, last of the public service announcements announcement. Thank you everyone for listening. I really appreciate it. Humbled by you guys turning into the podcast. Hope you guys got something out of it. Hope you guys are having a wonderful and blessed, happy week. Um, um, blessings to you all. And uh, uh, my prayers are with all my listeners. Have a great week, you guys. You'll be hearing from me soon. Take care. <laughs>